Isaiah chapter 63, Wrath and Deliverance. If you have a hard time with uh, the prophet Isaiah on a Wednesday night, try to read the chapter before you come. Have a help. Well, the first six verses of this chapter are dialogue. That's how Isaiah gives it to us. It's between the redeemed remnant of the Jewish people uh, in from the great tribulation uh, with Christ, in dialogue with Christ. Of course, from the Jewish perspective in the days of Isaiah, they had no concept of the Christ as we know him, but Messiah was certainly uh, a character that they were familiar with. And so we're dealing in these first six verses with the wrath of God. But then the chapter changes, and it makes it very difficult to give a title to the chapter because it's a drastic switch. But speaking of the judgment, being as serious as it is, the prophet Nahum was talking about God's wrath just on the Ninevites, and he says this, Who can stand before his indignation? And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. Well, here in Isaiah, he's dealing with the great tribulation period. Whereas I mentioned, Nahum is dealing with the judgment coming on the Ninevites. It's, it's a real thing. The wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb. What Isaiah starts off with in the first six verses is a warrior returning from the conflict. A conflict described from the standpoint of its completion. It's over. He's, he's coming back. He's giving the report. And you think about the wrath of God. You think about the people who acknowledge the existence of God. I believe there is a God. Well, good for you. That's really not enough. What about fearing his displeasure? Well, see, their concept of God is deficient, it's defective. And that's where we can really help. Uh, not necessarily by starting out with the wrath of God, but that's going to be part of the gospel. There's no way around it. So looking at the first verse, who is this who comes up from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, two questions and two answers in verses 1 and 2. The who and the why. Well, once we learn who is this warrior coming up from Basra, then the why is infinitely important. Their first question, who is this returning warrior coming up from Basra, which is a territory of Edom, enemy territory, the land inhabited by the descendants of Esau, known as the people of Eden. Now, Esau... the brother of Jacob, the twin brother of Jacob, the older of the two. And his name means Harry. And, you know, they was born and they said, wow, that kid is Harry. Well, that's his name. So they called him Harry. No, they didn't. But uh, then, of course, he gets Edom, which means red, over the whole stew incident where, you know, who needs a blessing? I'm hungry, which is a very carnal approach. and, And that's who... Esau was a very carnal man. So Esau the man, Edom, became the people of the man Esau. 
His nickname was Edom, and the people were known as the Edomites. And uh, you can look that up. Genesis 25 is where the story of his being nicknamed Red comes from. Edom has come to mean the world against God, against Israel from Isaiah's perspective. But from the New Testament, we have a broader look. We understand it's against all God's people because it's against God's will. Symbolic now of all who are in opposition to Israel and to faith. And so names do evolve. Zion evolved. It wasn't just originally the city of Jerusalem and the promised land. It's a name that evolved, and there's nothing to be intimidated by about that. Malachi brings out for us the the radical differences between Esau's descendants and Jacob's descendants, Israel and Edom. And, of course, Malachi is ministering to those who were, had a low-grade faith with a high attitude of their own religious approach to God. And God, of course, sent the prophet Malachi to straighten them out. I have loved you, says Yahweh. This is Malachi chapter 1, where it gets right, in, right to it, right at the beginning. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? And the answer comes, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says Yahweh? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. By contrast, God is saying, I have loved the Jewish people. And by contrast, those who are in opposition to me have been hated. Their ways have been unacceptable. You'll never meet an Edomite. You'll never meet a descendant of Esau. They are gone, which is the purpose of Malachi. I've loved Jacob. You Jews all over the place. You can't even wipe them out. It's a testimony to God's care for the Jewish people. But the descendants of Esau became an enemy of the Jewish people, were complicit in their destruction With the Babylonians, Obadiah is addressed to these people. And so where I'm going with this, when he's talking about Basra in the days of Isaiah, they understood these were the enemy. These were people hostile towards them. But now Edom and Basra, all of the Edomite territory, has a greater meaning. And it's pretty interesting how it's going to fit into the end times. So Isaiah reveals it is Yahweh returning to Zion after his judgment in Basra. Not a literal event, uh, but it's sort of a vision that he receives from the Lord. It doesn't say the word vision, but this is what he sees, and it is spot on accurate. Today, what is Edom's territory And Basra, one of the capital cities of the Edomites, is in the kingdom of Jordan, the modern kingdom of Jordan, just across the Jordan River. You can see it from the promised land. And uh, over there in that land, other than Basra, there is Selah, which is close to the ancient city of Petra. Basra, just to the north of those two cities. And it appears from Scripture that Many Jewish people will take refuge in the kingdom of Jordan when Antichrist comes to power. One of the first places it shows up is Isaiah chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. We covered that. 
We see it flash again before us in Revelation 12. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. That is, by the Jewish calendar of 360 days, three years and a half. Well, the Great Tribulation period, according to Daniel's seventh week, is going to be a seven-year period. Antichrist is going to be relatively friendly towards the Jewish people. Very friendly, actually. In the first three and a half years, then he goes nuts. And those last three and a half years, the time of Jacob's trouble, is when everything intensifies and he looks to wipe out the Jewish people. Because he is, again, Satan's boy. So, this first verse reinforces the idea of Jesus destroying the forces of Antichrist, which are global, is beyond just the Middle East. And conceivably, as the, those forces of Antichrist are poised to destroy the Jews seeking refuge in the kingdom of Jordan. But Antichrist won't be able to get to them. Now, now you should know, Petra, that natural fortification of a city is not mentioned in the scripture. Selah, or Selah, may be the same place or not, doesn't have to be. But what we do know about Antichrist coming to power is that he can't get his hands on, or he doesn't get his hands on, the people that are in Jordan, modern-day Jordan. And uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. I'll, I'll come back to that <clears throat> and, and tell you where that, where that comes from. Where I want to go now is to this part about the dyed garments from Basra in verse 1. Now, Basra means gape, uh, grape gathering. And it's a play on the name Edom. Edom is red. And if you're trampling on red grapes... Well, the Jews coming out is going to be classified as red. And uh, it's a, a type of the sinful nature is the, uh, Edom. It has two types. The impenitent world, as I mentioned, those against God. But Edom the, the, can in type be the flesh that is also resi resistant to God. Uh, the flesh um, and Basra... Resist God is the idea, is an enemy combatant of, of Yahweh. The ancient Basra being in the territory of the Edomites, the flesh is doomed, the world system is doomed. And that's what Isaiah is saying. Basra is doomed. We have, again, a greater understanding of these things from New Testament perspective. Jeremiah 49, 13, For I have sworn by myself, says Yahweh, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, a curse. And all its cities shall be perpetual wastes. That has been fulfilled. That's fulfilled prophecy. It's interesting. There's a lot of prophecy not fulfilled yet. There's prophecy being fulfilled in front of our eyes, and there's prophecy already done. Many of these places are mounds or tourist sites, but the prophecies are sure. He says here in verse 1, This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Well, this warrior is seen approaching. He's not wounded. He's not weary. He's glorious in apparel. He's dressed well for a warrior. Strong. 
And the prophet asks, who is this? For the sake of his audience, of course. Making this glorious fashion statement, we must know. Well, of course, it's more to just this, this, this blood on his garments. And uh, that ties into the name Basra, the, the, the red uh, of Edom and the grapes uh, being, you know, gathered and prepared, uh, to, uh, turned into or still distilled into wine. I speak in righteousness, mighty to save, comes the answer. The warrior answers the question, who is this that comes up dressed like this from Basra? And he says, I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, speaking in righteousness refers to God's infallibility and inability to be lying. God does not lie. Titus tells us in the first chapter, it's not possible. That would defy what the meaning of holiness is. And so he speaks in righteousness, and that's the word of God to us. I mean, the word of God to us is, is trustworthy and infallible to us. Uh, so his method is truth. Well, what's his purpose? Well, salvation, deliverance of the people of God from their enemies as the, end, as the great tribulation period will we'll demonstrate. He is mighty to accomplish his work. And so this is the who, who Isaiah is presenting. And now Isaiah, this chapter, he's going to have a session where he comes under great stress over things in, in life around him. But the foundation is his assurance of the things that God has shown him. The prophets believed their message. I hope all pastors believe their message. I hope all witnesses of Christ believe their message. When you tell someone, fear not, trust in the Lord. Do you fear not and trust in the Lord when you're under those distress of life? Whatever it may be coming your way. So Isaiah sees God in phases. He sees his work. He sees his vengeance. He sees his salvation. And the prophets condense these things into writings. Mighty to save. That is a dominating interest. That's one that I have. I mean, you can't be God if you're not mighty to save. Even in his judgments, he is saving his people. So, verse 2, Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? The second question. And, of course, this, this is blood, as emblematic of blood. The Hebrew word really is not used for blood, but well, it's translated, so we'll come to that. But uh, the sign of judged sin, stained with blood, the blood of his enemies, the day of vengeance of our God. And your garments like one who treads in the winepress, splattered with, uh, with uh, the grape juice. That's symbolic of, of the blood. You'll get that if you were reading the Hebrew, but you also get the meaning. So there's no loss, and the translation doesn't do any injustice to everything that's going on. Evidence of a conflict from which he emerges the victor. Joel says this about the judgment of God in the tribulation period. Alas, for that day, for the day of Yahweh is at hand, it shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Revelation's going to really tune into that, give us more detail, and it's going to be graphic and somewhat gory. 
language that is used here matches Revelation 14, verses 15 through 20. The vintage, the vine on the earth, the fully ripe world for judgment cast into the winepress of God's wrath. Where we get the phrase, the grapes of wrath. Well, verse 3 now, I have trodden the winepress, so the warrior is continuing to answer the question of who he is. He has already said where he's coming from, the judgment of Basra, again emblematic of the world, uh, in its phases. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. Well, um, I mentioned the Jewish people seeking refuge, and that they will have, and I mentioned that they will flee to the Jordan um, for this refuge. I'm looking for something I want to quote, and maybe I'm just not going to get to it yet, so since we can't cut to a commercial, I've got to be the professional and work my way out of it. Daniel, talk about uh, uh, Jordan being that refuge for the Jews. Daniel chapter 11, verse 41. By this time in Daniel chapter 11, he's talking about Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes, he is part of it. He is a type, but it is Antichrist who fulfills what he is talking about. And this is what he says. He shall also enter the glorious land. That's how Daniel saw the promised land. And that would be nice, you know, you book a flight not to Israel, but to the glorious land. You call it, I'd like a flight to the glorious land. Uh, they'll go, huh? And then you can yell at them. You don't know your Bible. Anyway, he shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Amnon. That's all modern-day Jordan. Egypt won't escape, and that's pointed out. And so uh, there is, you know, uh, our, where we get this understanding, these understandings of the Jews uh, fleeing to the kingdom of Jordan. And for whatever reasons, Antichrist can't get to them. Probably on a, looking at it from a human perspective, he's got bigger fish to fry. He thinks they're cornered. The logistics is going to be an issue, so he's rather going to deal with other things first and get to them later. But before he gets to them, this one, in, this mighty one in this apparel will deal with him. And that will be the end of it. And so he, he comes, to, he answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. So the warrior, in his wrath and fury, overcomes the foes, Revelation 19.15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. There is nothing friendly about a sword. It is a terrible letter opener. It is a weapon. And it has no other purpose. Uh, anyway. Yeah. I mean, you could use it for a doorstop. But that wouldn't be advisable. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. That with it, he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, because that's who He is. And you know that 19 chapters, the Lord returning, and we'll be with Him. 
He, he returns with ten thousands of his saints. The intense description of the wrath of the Lamb, as mentioned in Revelation 6. Not in Revelation also 19, 11 through 21. Graphically illustrating this slaughter, which is what's given to us here in these first six verses of Isaiah 63. Still, remember this. As you read this, this is gory. Boy, you can trample the blood splashing all over the place. Revelation, again, he ramps it up even higher. As gory as this may sound, eternal hell is going to be worse, and that still awaits them. A simple judgment on this life is not all there is. When someone like uh, Adolf Hitler uh, died, well, that was one part of his experience, but there's a judgment too, and that's the worst part. So we have to keep that perspective, especially when we talk to unbelievers. Listen, wherever you go through in this life, there's still a judgment to come. What does it profit a man? You gain the whole world, lose your soul. It ain't worth it. You should understand these concepts. Well, but then when I think about when I was lost, what would I have understand till the Lord got hold of me? And so the humility that has to always accompany our sure convictions. Well, our Lord's garments were dyed with blood as a result over the great victory of his enemies. This is combat. Combat. Again, this is not the cross, so we're going to get to part of that. Revelation 19.13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So we're not guessing about who this character is. Harmony throughout Scripture is astounding. How it all locks in. You younger ones, when you get into the world, if you, if you go to the universities or you have Mr. Mr. Know-it-all at work, understand they don't know it all. They are wrong. They can make human, they can have human achievements and successes and lose their soul. Don't let them drag you down with them. Understand that the word of God is sure. And just because they don't like it does not mean they win the argument. I have trodden the winepress alone. Again, this may remind us of Calvary, but its first meaning is judgment. Of course, Calvary belongs to everything that uh, the Lord does. That being New Testament uh, Christians, we see this. Uh, Never is his wrath... Out of control. Never is it um, something that just sprung up. It has been documented. No one will say about the, the Great Tribulation period, well, we didn't see that coming. Well, if you didn't see it coming, you, they may be able to say that, but it it's not, won't be that. <clears throat> there wasn't documentation. It was there just in, in the Word of God. Now, blood here in verse 3 it's not the usual word for blood, but the Hebrew word is red juice. And he's uh, keeping it consistent with the metaphor of Basra and its gape, grape gathering. And uh, that's the translators have appropriately given this interpretive rendering. Sometimes, you know, they're like, you know, I think they, I could have done better than that. <laughs> the armchair quarterback kind of thing. But this is one where it, it is sound because the context supports uh, their interpretation. That is precisely what is taking place. Uh, the, the grape juice is a metaphor for the blood. 
the, of, uh, and it's consistent with, with Basra and the judgment that will befall them. And so his imagery mixes that of the farmer with the grape juice trampling of, of the harvest grapes uh, for the wine. But before his garments were stained with blood and judgment, they were stained with his own blood as a victim. See, this ties in. The first meaning is the judgment, the wrath of God on his enemies. However, he first suffered as a victim and bled on the cross. Well, where do we see this in type? In the Old Testament. Well, in Joshua. Before the Jews crossed over the promised land to begin to purge the land of the people and their wickedness, the first thing those troops had to do was turn those knives on themselves. They had to be circumcised because they failed to do it in the wilderness. And so the knives first were turned on them before they could be instruments of judgment. Here we have the Savior saving people under false judgment. And yet he comes and uh, the blood on his garment is the blood of his enemies. But he did what he could to save those who are lost. He alone treads upon our sin. No one on earth, not even those dearest and nearest to him, could help him. They could not even grasp what his work was about, the work of redemption on the cross. And uh, it wasn't until the Holy Spirit was given to the church that they really began to understand on, a, on another level the things that were written in the prophecies. I mean, you just look at Peter. You look at Peter, you know, as he, after Pentecost, his grasp on Scripture and truth just catapults. It just goes crazy. It's just such an improvement. Whereas before that, he's saying, well, we've got to find a replacement for Judas. And that was not, that didn't go. It wasn't a disaster, but it, it was less than what it should have been. Anyway, no, no slight on Matthias, a righteous man, but... Um, of all the apostles, who would we have picked to make the first blunder? Well, Peter, of course. Uh, but again, thank God for Peter because we learned so much from his mistakes. Uh, it really has a big help. Anyway, uh, when the Lord came, what did he meet with? Well, many of those who hated him held him in contempt for his love and his doing good. And the apostles pointed that out in the Acts. And there's a chorus of scorn and mockery. And the climax, of course, was the cross. When they howled, crucify him. Well, so that is the background to the first meanings of the blood that is associated with this character that we know to be the Christ. Verse 4 for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Well, the time is now in this phase of judgment, which is still future, when there's no more love for the enemies. The enemy is being dealt with. And this, this is part of the gospel message, too. We tell people, you get one lifetime of love from God. If you don't come to him, it ends at death. Uh, God's not schizophrenic. He's not going to say, I love you, but I'm going to send you to hell. It's, it's going to be a just judgment. Isaiah 61, verse 2, the day of vengeance of our God. Zechariah 14, 3. 
Then Yahweh will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Well, that's what I said, was saying earlier. Not just me, although I would like, it, I would like to be the only one who knew these things. <laughs> but uh, it, that's the teaching, is that uh, Basra is emblematic of the world, as Zechariah is just flat out saying. Revelation 19, verse 21, the New Testament rings in. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. It continues. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Well, there's no room for speculation there. It straight out tells us that the wrath of God is not to be trifled with. And I I hope we don't miss that. You know, when the church appeases, the church is in retreat. And so is truth. We don't have to appease. We deliver the message. Uh, We try to deliver it with love. But, you know, so you can get accused of, you know, being mean and vicious because they don't like your message. May we stand strong, be truthful, and, 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 and have love. Uh, even in, with indignation, there can be love, and the love is, is still hope. Anyway, and the year of my redeemed has come. Well, the final destruction of Gentile powers prior to the kingdom age. And if you have been a victim of tyranny and injustice and persecution for righteousness' sake, the day of justice is welcomed. And Isaiah is going to end this chapter with that very thing. Lord, why aren't you doing more? Revelation 6.10, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, Isaiah is telling us, well, he's just finished. He's coming up from Basra, blood on his garments. He's dealt with the nations. And then verse 5, Isaiah 63, I looked, but there were none to help, and I wondered that, There was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. Well, if you were a Jew living in Isaiah's day amongst the wickedness and the apostasy, you would be loving these words. There's a single Savior. Mary would rebuke you for daring to think she was a co-redemptrix. That was just insane to her. Uh, She would have been the first one to cast a stone at you for something like that. Uh, Single-handed redemption is what we have here. And there's nothing wrong with it. No reason for us to be ashamed of it. Uh, I don't care if people say many roads lead to heaven. No, they don't. There's one, and it's through Christ. Only Jesus can and will defeat Antichrist. And I wondered that there was none to uphold. Now, this is anthropomorphic, assigning... uh, Putting it in human language, putting divine behavior in human language so we can get what's going on. And this expresses the complexity of a cursed world. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. It is a statement on how far-reaching a single act of sin in the Garden of Eden has reached throughout human history. Uh, you can, Isaiah 59 is similar information there, verse 16. Revelation 5 uh, also gives us an idea that there's a single Savior and that the damage is deep. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. 
But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and that can only be one person, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. That is the title deed to the earth. And there it is being given to us in similitude with all sorts of illustrations and metaphor that don't fade over the generations to tell us what's going to take place. I don't care how much we don't, do not understand about the book of Revelation. We always understand enough about the Re- book of Revelation to know we win. That's, that's the most important part. When you finish Revelation, well, that was a lot of stuff there. But I'm glad I'm on this team. And so, uh, it, it, God is saying here, it is not as though I have overlooked an alternative to my son's crucifixion. That's the language, the anthropomorphic language. I wondered that there was no one to uphold. My own arm did this. I looked, but there was no one to help. He's putting it in language so we get to understand that God is not cruel. If there was another way, he would have done it. There was not any other way. It's not something that God had delighted in doing, but it was in demand. So Jesus said, Matthew 26, Oh, my father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And what was the father's response? Silence. And what was that silence? What's the meaning of the silence? It can't. The only possible way people are going to get saved is you on the cross and you out the tomb. That's it. Very simple message. But how much is put into it uh, concerning the judgments? Just the judgments alone. Verse 6. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Now, the sophisticated mind is offended by these things because humanistic people think that they're more merciful than God to begin with. Well, that's why in Revelation 6.16, they're saying, Hide his face from him. Uh, They hid... Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Instead of all of that, how about repenting? And that's how the language is presented to it. The Holy Spirit says, you'll figure this out. I'll put it this way. You'll see. How come they didn't just repent? They did at Nineveh the first time when when Jonah went through. He didn't even have to tell them what they had to do. He just said, you're going to burn. And I'm going to be sitting on that hill watching with a long stick. And a hot dog on the end. I can't wait for you to go. That was Jonah's heart. This is from the man who said, just kill me. Throw me overboard. <laughs> it's a prophet of God. And I, I love that guy. Because I was like, man, if he can get into heaven, I can get in there. <laughs> All right, verse 7. And I will mention the loving kindness of Yahweh. And the praises of Yahweh according to all that Yahweh has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindness. Well, see, okay, there's this where he says, uh, I will mention. It's literally, I will bring to remembrance. There's this outburst of praise on the heels of judgment. He rejoices over the salvation. And the just judgment of God. What what if God never dealt with the wicked? That'd be pretty messed up. What if you get to heaven and Hitler's high? (laughs) He was good with it. That would that you'd be you wouldn't be in heaven. We want God to execute 
just judgment, but we want his mercy on us. And we would want that mercy on anybody who would just come. So in the wilderness, when they complained to God, God says, you know what? I'm sending some vipers to fix this. And the people began to get bitten by the vipers and die. And they came to Moses and God said, hammer a brass serpent. And when they look at it, they'll be fine. They'll be cured. All you got to do is look. But if you want to be brick-headed and not look, then you die. And that is a type of the gospel too. And then that was eventually abused and Hezekiah got rid of that and called it Nehushtan. It's nothing because the people made an idol out of it. And they, the sinful nature ruins everything they, they, that it, it touches if it's allowed to. Anyway, he, here's this outburst of praise and he's recognizing the loving kindness of Yahweh. After all the bloodshed, the prophet says, well, the righteous... The righteous will be protected. And uh, verse 8, For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. I know you have a little child that's so cute. They're not going to lie. He's never going to sin. Look how cute they are. And yeah, you, you know better, right? And anyway, he looks back to the days of Exodus and Moses. He looks back to the days of Joshua crossing into the... Uh, promised land, days of deliverance for an undeserving people. But also, he sees the second generation out of Egypt in contrast to the first generation that were unbelieving, the ones that got their act together. That generation that crossed over Jordan, they had their act together in contrast to the ones, that older generation that littered the wilderness with their carcasses in judgment for their faithlessness. Um, it's a healthy read to go through the book of Numbers. You see God dealing with complainers. <laughs> it makes you say, do I do that? <laughs> anyway, God expresses the great expectations he has for delivered Israel, and he does the same thing for his church. They let him down, we tend to let him down, but not all the time. We still are useful to God, we still get enough done. God always has his remnant, and he had them in Israel. And so Isaiah quickly reminds them of their unfaithfulness and God's loving kindness nonetheless. And the New Testament has perfected that. Why don't we hear about more problems of the saints in the New Testament? Because God says, you know, you, you know, you get it by now. I've showed it to you. I've showed you David's faults. I've showed you, you know, uh, Jacob's fault. I've showed you that we all have these faults. I don't need to keep harping on it in the New Testament. And um, uh, the New Testament would be just as thick as the Old Testament. <laughs> you have to consider volume. How many of you wish the animals could speak? Big mistake. You know how loud earth would be? Shut up! The dogs would be talking, just chattering. Even the birds in the morning, in the springtime, they just won't shut up. Anyway, just, yeah, yeah, they, they, they get that shotgun out. Uh, anyway, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, it's hard to spit the pellets out. Anyhow, uh, where am I? Verse 9. In their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them, and he bore them, and carried them 
all the days of old. And so, you know, it's a shift now from the judgment on Edom. The prophet is talking about the loving kindness and the care of God, uh, indicating that his presence never forsook them. That God witnessed their hardships and he felt them. And the translation is accurate because the context, the context demands that. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. He felt it too. And just because he doesn't swoop down and stop it doesn't mean he doesn't feel it. And this is what Isaiah is going to go in the end. He's going to say to God, why don't you do more? Ultimately, the Shekinah finds fulfillment in Christ. That light and that presence and that fire is fulfilled in Christ. And he literally took the affliction of Israel and the world on the cross. And so his presence is very meaningful, as we know, but there's more to the presence of God than the mere existence of God, which much of the world doesn't get. There is God, and he is active, and he is in our midst, and it is in our best interest to learn about, as much about him as we can. And that's why you come to a midweek Bible study on the prophets like Isaiah. Because you just want God. And you come to church, whether you know it or not, to hear from God. It's his system. It's not like the only place you can hear from him, but it is the place that he has ordained if the, if the preachers will preach the word. Uh, even, even if you don't, well, that's never happened here. But in some churches, they don't agree always with the pastor. But the scripture, that's another matter. When he quotes the scripture, uh, that will get the attention no matter what. Anyway, uh, the Shekinah indicated to the Jews in the wilderness that God was close enough. He is in touch with his creation. He could feel what they were feeling. Verse 10, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them, as mentioned with the vipers that are from the book of Numbers, and, and the other plagues in the book of Numbers. What happened to the ten spies that, that wanted to kill Joshua and Caleb for daring to trust God? Well, God killed them with the plague. Uh, so uh, God was present through it all. The interesting thing in verse 10 of course, this ties into Ephesians 4, the grief of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there, are very, there are only three direct references, Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament. Of course, the Spirit of God is mentioned throughout, but as Holy Spirit. You know, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And the two other places is here in, in Isaiah 63, 10 and 11. And in the New Testament, you got 92 direct references, and not to count all, all the others. Well, here's an interesting part, because God is unfolding his plan. This is the, probably the only place in the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit's existence is given to us as a distinct person. Well, you could say he hovered over the earth in Genesis 1. But this one is very distinct, and it gives him an attribute that is human. At least we share it, and that's grief. What's, what is grief? Grief is the cost of love. It's one of the definitions of grief. You don't grieve over that which you don't lose. I mean, if you don't like it, if, you, if somebody gives you food you don't like and it falls on the floor, you're not grieving. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm glad. I don't want to eat that. But if it's something you love, it's a 
mild case of grief. But we know, I don't want to make it heavy, it's too easy to do that. We, you get it. Verse 11, we'll take verses 11 through 14. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought up? brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock. Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them? Verse 12, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might be, might, might not stumble like I just did reading that. Verse 14, As a beast goes down into the valley, and the Spirit of Yahweh causes him to rest, so you lead your people to make yourself a glorious name. Well, verse 11, it gives historical reminders, which is common with the prophets, and into the New Testament. You know, Stephen gives them a whole history lesson on their their past before they killed him, and somebody was there to write it down. Uh, so, verses 12 through 13, uh, mankind is told about God, their maker, and his methods with his people. And we now, the church says, and you can be one of his people very easily. Nehemiah says this in chapter 9, when he's doing similar thing, giving a review of the history to the Jews. Uh, what happens when you hide the history of your roots, your, your people as a nation. Well, you get leftists. You get uh, liberalism. You get this insanity uh, trying to, you know, hide the things that we could benefit from. Well, the Jews, you know, the prophets, they, they, they reviewed their history and their sermons. And Nehemiah says, you showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against his servants, and against all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted proudly against them, so you made a name for yourself as it is this day. Well, how did he make a name for himself? Well, Rahab, the harlot, she knew. She, we heard about you people wiping out everybody. I want to be on your side. And there were others. And so that God did make a name for himself. Uh, verse 63, uh, sorry, Isaiah 63, verse 15. Look down from heaven and see for your habitation, holy and glorious, where your zeal and your strength, where, where are your zeal and your strength, the yearning of your heart and your mercies towards me, are they restrained? Verse 16. Doubtless you are our father, though Abraham was ignorant of us and Israel does not Acknowledge us, you, O Yahweh, are our Father, our Redeemer, from everlasting is your name. So Isaiah, surveying his times, he's made a radical switch from the end time judgment in the first six verses. He then burst out and praised towards God. And now, from verse 15 through 19, he is um, asking God for help. And he briefly reviewed their history. He's living in stress-filled days. How do we know? What would, why would a speaker say that? Because chapter 63, followed by chapter 64, and we looked there at Isaiah 64, verse 1. 
And there he says, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. God, can you just come here? Can you come and fix this mess? It's indicating how awful times were to him for whatever was going on in his life. It's a plea to God to act on behalf of the righteous. Gideon, he did the same thing. Where are the promises that God did for our forefathers? How come we have to deal with this mess? And so Isaiah is saying, are we not in part belonging to that unbroken witness from Abraham to Israel, Jacob, to this day. And therefore, are we not eligible for your blessings on our life? Are we not eligible for the direct support, identical support that you gave to them? That's, that is what he's saying. I'm, I'm one of, we're, we're your people. Where are the blessings? Verse 17, O Lord, why have you made us stray your ways from your ways? And hardened our heart from your fear. Return for your servant's sake the tribes of your inheritance. He's not denying their guilt. He is admitting their guilt. And he is saying that uh, that the penalty uh, was upon them for their sinful choices. He's saying God allowed them to sin. But he wanted God to interfere. He wanted God to intervene on their behalf and stop them from sinning. It's understandable. You you may have been there. If you've been around Christianity long enough, you've God, why did you let this happen? You could have stopped me or you could have stopped them. You could change things. What is it? It It is a declaration of his sovereignty. You recognize that he is strong enough, but he can't reconcile Well, if he's strong enough and he loves me, why is he letting this happen? Why did you not restrain us as you did Pharaoh on behalf of Abraham and Sarah, as you did Abimelech on behalf of Abraham and Sarah? See, Abraham went down to to Egypt to avoid the famine, but he wasn't led to go there. But he went anyway, and it was a disaster. And they brought back some of that disaster with them. And the name of that one was Hagar. Because they were doing things emotionally in their flesh. Well, he gets to Egypt and he he sees the men looking at Sarah. Evidently, she is a knockout, as we would say. And uh, he says, look, I see how they look at you. And I see how they look at me after they look at you. They're going to kill me to get you. So here's the plan. (laughs) Tell them you're my sister, which was partially true. And, uh, you know, because different moms. This is before the giving of the law. Anyway, uh, she goes along with it, of course, because she's not against him. (laughs) Anyhow, uh, the plague hits Pharaoh because of this. And Pharaoh, the Jews, we've not given the details, but the Egyptians figure it out, not the Jews. The Egyptians figure it out, and they come to Abraham. You lied to us. She's not. She's your wife. You could have killed us. Why did you just tell us? Anyway, that was a disaster. Well, years later, he goes back to the promised land. But years later, he goes to a place named Gira. Same thing. Tell him you're my sister. You think Sarah would have said, before we just beat up on Abraham, you think Sarah would have said, that didn't work last time. But they're both going along with it again. So uh, Genesis 20, verse 6, tells us how God intervened. 
got involved on behalf of Abraham. And, and so God goes to the king Abimelech of Gerah, the king of Gerah, and God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Okay, well, Isaiah knew this passage, and here he's saying, God, why didn't you do this for us? I withheld you from sinning against me. So he's asking God in verse 17, O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart from your fear? How come we're not fearing you? How come we're sinning? How come the nation is a mess? How come you don't do more? I find God does not answer a lot of questions, even in the New Testament. <laughs> because like, they'll ask Jesus questions, and he goes on to this parable. That he's, like, What's this? he's not answering the question. I got a lot out of the parable, but he didn't answer the question. So uh, uh, anyway, he is not charging God with wrong, but he is recognizing the sovereignty. He's identifying a big problem. And he is yielding at the same time to God's prerogative. God doesn't have to swoop in and interfere. Frequently in in Scripture, God is said to have done what he has allowed. And that is a testimony of sovereignty. Pharaoh's heart was already hard. He was already doing wrong. God just supported him in what he was doing. turned him over to what he was doing wrong because God is sovereign. Uh, you cannot have a free will people without a sovereign God and expect to have anybody do well. So, again, uh, how can God lead insistent sinners from sin? By force. Well, he's not going to do that as a rule. Uh, sometimes he does interfere. And many times, most of the time, he does not. What would it look like if every time I needed God to interfere? But why bother living? It's just, here, God, can you live my life for me? I'm making a mess of things. Well, we have to live it out. We have to live it out with him. We have to abide with him. He will cooperate. He will be with us. Isaiah knew that. That's why he continues to preach. But he's sharing with us what was going on in his heart, a struggle in his heart. He sees the judgments of God on the, on, on the world, the nations, on you know, Basra and Edom. He praises the Lord for the justice that's coming. He recognizes the history that God wanted what God wanted more from his people, didn't get it, but was faithful nonetheless. But then he still has had his problems in his life. And he voices it and he writes it down so we can see it. We can identify with this. Paul will do the same thing when we get to Romans 7 this Sunday if things go according to plan. And you know, there are those commentators when Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? When he says, I will to do good, but evil is present with me. There are those commentators, well, Paul's not talking about himself. Of course he is. He's a sinner. And he's the one that said that he's not fit to be an apostle. And by the end of his life, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. Of all that I've been used by God, of all that I know about God, of all that, uh, you know, I'm the beloved Paul. I've graduated. I've got a promotion. I'm worse than I thought. And so we read that and we learn these things. We say, thank you, Lord. Just hope for me. If God can forgive David and use David like he did, what a merciful God. 
We talk about his mercies anew every morning. Well, it's easy to receive that. We have to make sure we're able to give it also. Verse 18, your holy people have possessed it. But a little while our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. Sanctuary here may apply to all the promised land. The northern kingdom might have been gone by this time. Because Isaiah lived through that. Uh, but it could be the abuses that were taking place in on the Temple Mountain. There were many of them through men like Manasseh and Ahaz and others. Verse 19. We have become like those of old over whom you never ruled. Those who were never called by your name. And, and this would be, uh, of course, the Assyrians and, and even the traitors within. So this is a lamentation. And again, it sets up the first verse. We'll close with this one more time. We'll read Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. The New Testament Christian might say, I hope the rapture is today. If he won't come down, maybe I can go up. Well, <laughs> there's work to do, though. Let's not uh, <laughs> work to do. Focus on the mission. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you. Your word is so much in it, so rich with instruction and reminders that we all need. May we not be puffed up as we learn from you. May we remain conscious that we are sinners saved by grace. And that your love and your mercy abound. And may you get us home safely, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.